This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Origen was a prolific writer. Generally, there are three categories for his writings. Biblical writings, polemical writings, and some theological writings. Let me mention some of the more prominent. He is very famous for his hexapola, a six-fold Bible. What this was, was a Bible that contained six columns. It was an Old Testament. And in two columns, he had the original text, the original Hebrew text in Greek and in Hebrew. And the other four columns were different versions of the Septuagint on that particular verse. So it took a lot of work on his part. He also wrote commentaries uh, on virtually every book of the New Testament and Old Testament. So he was very, very prolific. He, uh, incidentally, and you just I'll just mention this in passing, he, in terms of his biblical commentaries, he is famous for the allegorical interpretation. He was less concerned about the literal meaning and far more concerned about the deeper mystical meaning of the text. Now, do you know why that's the case? Remember I talked about the Gnostic influence. He is not, he's not simply satisfied with a basic faith. He wants to get a deeper faith. And so his, his allegorical method lets him permits him to get this deeper meaning to the text. Sometimes the allegorical meaning is very far removed from the actual text itself. He also wrote uh, polemical writings. One of the most famous of these is his work called Against Celsus. Celsus was an Epicurean philosopher who had made some uh, scurrilous attacks C-E-L-S-U-S. Against Celsus. This is a polemical writing of his. Well, he's antagonistic. He's trying to uh, attack... Uh, a pagan writer for his accusations against Christianity. So Celsus is a bad guy. And Origen took it upon himself to address the objections raised by Celsus. I'll give you a few of the uh, accusations made by Celsus against Christianity. Celsus had argued that Jesus was born from an adulterous relationship between Mary and a soldier. Origen found that troubling. <laughs> Celsus 
rejected the resurrection as a preposterous notion. He had said the incarnation was irrational. He said Christianity was a religion for poor, ignorant, superstitious people. Inadvertently, Celsus, because he he named some of the of the epistles of the early of of uh, the New Testament, is a major source in helping us identify uh, early uh, early writings, the early dates for the New Testament writings. So he sort of, in a, in a roundabout way, helps uh, us in terms of dating the New Testament. At any rate, Origen takes. Celsus on and defends Orthodox Christianity against Celsus. And then, in terms of theological writings, he writes a work called, uh, a better, a good translation is The Foundation of the Christian Religion. De Principius. I'll spell that for you. D E is the first word. P-R-I-N-C-I-P-I-I-S. Uh, it got smudged here, so I'm not sure you can see that. It means on the foundation, um, on the fundamental principles of Christianity. And it's this work that is the first attempt at a systematic theology. So Origen is the first person who writes a systematic theology. And it's his book on the foundations, first principles. And it's this book in particular that has aroused a lot of concern about the orthodoxy of Origen's theology. Serious objections resulted. He appears to be full of Platonistic and Gnostic influences. And that has troubled even men and women of his own day. Let's look at his theology and see what it was that disturbed folk. His doctrine of God. Uh, for origin, God is an incomprehensible spiritual being. And in particular, he is uh, seen as the cause of all things good. God is also, for origin, the creator of the world. So you see here that, that at least at this point, there is no Gnostic sort of influence where it's the Demiurge that created this world. So God is this incomprehensible spiritual being who is particularly concerned, uh, particularly associated in the mind of origin with the one who causes all things good and the creator of the world. One little note here about his doctrine of God. Origen affirms what he calls eternal creation. Uh, this is not, to Origen's mind, an endless succession of new worlds being created. But rather, there is a sense, according to Origen, in which there are new uh, metamorphoses of the one world. It somehow it continues to go through changes. Not, not new worlds being created, but the one world undergoing 
a number of changes. Uh, and why does it do this? It's just the nature of God to create and to keep creating. His Christology. Now he looks at the Logos or the Son as divine reason as well as the mediator between God and the world. Now the Logos, he says, proceeds from the Father and is the same essence of the Father. He even uses the term homoousios. I O S. Homoousios, meaning the same essence. So, Origen can talk about the Son or the Logos being the same essence, the Homoousios of the Father. But then he goes on to say that the Logos is a copy of the original. The Logos, the Son, is a copy of the original Father. So the Son is a copy of the Father. Proceeds from the Father, the same essence, but he wants to call it a copy or an image of the Father. And as such, the Logos is inferior to the Father. So on the one hand... He affirms the homoousios, the same essence between the Logos and the Father. And yet, because the Son is an image of the Father, He is somehow less than the Father. So we find again this subordinationism idea emerging. He speaks of the Son, although co-eternal, He's willing to say things like the Son is co-eternal and co-substantial, Yet, he talks about the Son as a second God. He describes the Son as having been created. The point here is that Origen does some rather unusual things. The Son is, on the one hand, the same essence, and on the other hand, he is somehow less than, subordinate to, the Father. Co-eternal. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> At times, he uses the language that the Son is eternal because He is the image of the Father. At other times, he talks about Him as being a creature. Uh, I'm not asking you to, to, to believe that this makes sense. I just, I just want you to understand that he's putting these two ideas together. I mean, the basic idea of the Son being essentially the same as the Father, homoousios, and yet subordinate, is kind of hard to put together too. Now we come to his doctrine of man, and this is where things get a little weird, a little more weird.
Origen argues that before the creation of the world, the Logos created a number of spiritual beings. In eternity, before the creation of the world, the Logos created these spiritual beings. And he gave them free will. And when you give spiritual beings such as these free will, all of them turned away from God except one. All of these created spiritual beings turned away from God except one. So what we find here is a fall of sorts. And because these spiritual beings had turned away from God, God punished them by clothing them in, in physical bodies. These fallen spiritual beings are punished for their sin by clothing them with physical bodies. And these fallen spiritual beings who now have bodies explains the origin of mankind. Kind of strange. So the, the, one of the interesting things about this is that the fall is pre-temporal. It takes place before the creation of the world. And mankind had a pre-existence as a spiritual being before he was uh, created on earth. So mankind enters the temporal realm already a sinful creature. That's right. So it's not like our forefathers, so to speak, were created there, but all of us were created there. In, it had a pre-existence. That's right. There's a pre-existence. That this is, there you, one can see a certain platonic sort of influence in some of this. At any rate, and so life on earth, being punished now with these physical bodies, is sort of a disciplinary process. We are being disciplined. And eventually, in order to bring about an eventual restoration, the Logos takes on human flesh in the Incarnation. So the reason that Jesus comes, takes on human flesh, is to restore these uh, fallen spiritual beings who take on human flesh. Now, the Incarnation is also interesting, according to Origen. You, you mentioned one did not. I, I'm getting to that one. Oh, okay. How could the Logos, who is homoousios with the Father, the same essence, how could he take on flesh? Well, according to 
origin, the only one of those spiritual beings which did not fall, the only spiritual being that remains, joins the eternal Logos in in some sort of union. So you've got this spiritual being entering into a union with the Logos out of love, apparently. And this spiritual being, motivated by love, becomes the humanity of the Logos. It's not simply that the Logos takes on flesh, but rather there's something else that happens in Origen's conception. This spiritual being takes on humanity and then joins himself to the the Logos to enable him then to become incarnate and bring about the restoration of the other spiritual beings. So what you find here really in origin is there is no true incarnation. Circle that. You'll see it again, I'm sure, in one form or another. Origin does not, in, in his conception, does not really have a, a real incarnation. The son's humanity originates from outside himself by this one last spiritual being who becomes humanity for the Logos and then joins to uh, the Logos. And then when Christ suffers on the cross, He does not suffer. Only this spiritual being who's taken on humanity, that's the only one that suffers. The Logos did not suffer on the cross. Now, having said that, you find Origen talking about the atoning sacrifice of Christ's death on the cross, without which men are doomed to suffer for their sins. So he uses language at certain points that sounds a lot like an atonement on the part of Christ. And without this death of Christ, there would would be no salvation possible. So there are some elements that will eventually come in to be orthodox. But this idea of this one spiritual being taking on humanity for Christ really means that there is no real incarnation. That Jesus, the Logos, does not become the God-man in the fullest sense. The final goal of Christ's work in redemption, the final goal here of of Christ's work is ultimately to deliver the spirit beings from the bondage of their physical bodies. Again, that sounds an awful lot like some of the Gnostic notions we mentioned earlier. 
you can see why people had trouble with some of the ideas of origin. A very creative theologian, one might say. Yes? The union with the, uh, the other spirit being, is that a Gnostic idea too? That God become Well, that's the reason. That's, that's the reasoning behind it. Because the Lagos, uh, in and of himself, is, is pure spirit. And he's pure good. And, the, and he cannot take on flesh and become evil. So he's got to figure out another way for him to, to become incarnate so that he himself is somehow one step removed from evil matter. You're right. There is, a, I think, a, a real strong Gnostic sort of idea here. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I can speak to that specifically. I don't. I don't, I don't recall if if they get into that specifically. Just finish up here. Uh, shake your hands. There we go. What happens at death in terms of eschatology? Well, the righteous, when they die. They enter paradise into a state of blessedness, as you might expect. But even though these people have been righteous and they've, they've attained this special knowledge, this deeper knowledge, even after they die, they still undergo some, and I can use only think of this word, training in deeper, in more knowledge. They still haven't attained Enough. Even those people who were who who did good in their lives, who who followed after Origin, if they who believed like Origin did, when they died, they still had to go through a process of acquiring even a deeper knowledge of God. And only after this other period of further and deeper knowledge do they finally attain a full restoration. That's the righteous. So there is no sense in which immediately upon death, the righteous ascend to, to heaven. But there is a process even the righteous must go through in order to get the deepest knowledge and to attain blessedness. Yes, they will shed the body. Absolutely. Now, the wicked, to get to Chris's question earlier, the wicked, when they die, they undergo a process of purification. A process of purification. In the end, after this perhaps extensive period of purification, all spiritual beings, the righteous and the wicked, even Satan and his demons, says Origen, are ultimately restored. So one sees in Origen, in fact, he's very famous as being an advocate of universalism, that in the final analysis, all will eventually be restored. The 
Yes, except the, the difference is is that the uh, the wicked have to go through their purification is a painful purification. There are they, there's some uh, language about fire in this purification process. Uh, on the other hand, the righteous they go through a more of a of a training process, a, a process of acquiring deeper and deeper knowledge, uh, and then a t- a finally to heaven. Yes. I think it, theoretically that's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, one more. Say that. Say that again. I, I can. A spiritual being. Yeah. Yeah. This is the realm. We're in the realm of the spirits. Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't know exactly how Satan fits into his system. He does talk about Satan, but I don't know if he explains in detail uh, how he got to be where he was, where he is. Incidentally, I uh, didn't mention that Origen was an opponent of Achilleism up here in terms of eschatology. Achilleism, that Achilleism, sorry, that is the view that Christ will return and establish a visible kingdom on earth and Christ will actually rule for a thousand years. It's, it's what we call today premillennialism. So, Western theologians. Okay, we're going to look here primarily at Tertullian. There is a difference in attitude, and I think someone was asking me earlier about the differences between Greek and and the West, East and West. We find early on even different attitudes here. Uh, The Western theologians did not, uh, were not inclined to look at Christianity as a new philosophy, as were the Greek theologians. Rather, they wanted to look at Christianity as new life a new relationship between God and man. You don't see them, for example, talking about a true gnosis or a false gnosis. Uh, They don't make that distinction between pistis and gnosis. Instead, they talk about the tradition of the church, what the church has believed. They're much more uh, conscious of the traditional teachings And for the Western theologians, faith is not, in the first place, knowledge. But it has to do with salvation. It's wrapped up. It has a much more uh, soteriological sort of outlook. They're not, in the first place, concerned about this deeper knowledge, getting behind and deeper into Christianity. And in a very real sense... uh, Medieval theology begins with Tertullian. 
He is called the father of Latin theology. Now, he is, we don't find it in any full form in him, but you start seeing the basic patterns. Tertullian will be somewhat familiar to you. Origen, no doubt, was, was very alien to you. But Tertullian uh, is a little bit different. One other thing to note here is that Western theology, the theology of what will become the Middle Ages, begins not in Rome, but in Carthage, North Africa. Western theology began not in Rome as much as it did in Carthage. And if you just look at some of the basic occupations of, if you compare the Eastern theologians with the Western theologians, there is a, a, a great more philosophers who are Eastern theologians. But when it comes to Western theologians, they tend to be more lawyers. I'm not sure that's good or bad or an improvement. It's just, it's just a fact. Uh, so the Western theologians, there's more of a tendency to have a legal background as opposed to a philosophical background. Tertullian himself. Dates are approximately 160 to 230 A.D. We're getting now to the mid, approaching the mid-third century. Tertullian is considered the greatest of the early church fathers. You need to realize that Tertullian is... Uh, an interesting person in his own right. One scholar writes about him that he was a born rebel. He rebelled against his pagan family upbringing. He rebelled against Roman culture. And he rebelled against what he saw as moral laxity in the church. Tertullian reminds us that even now, late 2nd, early 3rd century, there are people who are looking at the church and they see that there are serious problems, moral problems. And Tertullian takes it upon himself to address those moral problems, make accusations, and come up with a theology to change it. When you read Tertullian, you can hardly avoid the sincerity and the, and the intensity of this man. He is a very powerful man, not unlike Luther in some ways. Very intense, uh, very extreme in his personality. Philip Schaff describes Tertullian this way. A rare genius, perfectly original and fresh, but angular, boisterous and eccentric. Full of pointed wit, keen discernment, polemic polemical dexterity and moral earnestness. He resembled a mountain torrent rather than a calm, transparent river in the valley. Uh, several times I've come across scholars who draw a certain analogy between Tertullian and Luther because of that real, intense uh, religious belief. About his life, we know relatively little uh, he was born around the middle of the second century uh, at Carthage in North Africa. His father was the captain of the Roman Legion in Africa, in North Africa. So his father was a very prominent military person. 
Uh, and because of his father's status, Tertullian received a superb education. He's familiar with literature, poetry. He's familiar with philosophy. Even though he ends up being a lawyer, uh, he's very familiar with philosophy, medicine, and so forth. He is, in some ways, uh, one of the first theologians to write in Latin as opposed to writing exclusively in Greek. Tertullian actually writes in both Greek and Latin. And as to his profession, he seems to have been a lawyer. Eusebius describes him as a man accurately acquainted with Roman laws. As to his conversion, we don't know anything about it, except that he was converted as an adult, somewhere between the age of 30 and 40. And there do seem to be some indications that before his conversion, he lived a very immoral life. But after his conversion, he is a straight arrow. And in fact, uh, I liken him to, to something uh, along the lines of a, a very strict Puritan in terms of his lifestyle. He was married... And he gives, at one point, a very glowing picture of the ideal married life, but it's pretty clear that this is a description of his own married life. And I thought I'd just take just a moment to, to give you this, this little quote. You don't have to take this down. Just, just listen about, about how Tertullian's relationship with his wife. And you can see, the, again, the intensity of the man. He says, what a union of two believers, one hope, one vow, one discipline, and one worship. They are brother and sister, two servants, one spirit, and one flesh. And then he goes on. They pray together, fast together, instruct, exhort, and support each other. They go to the church of God, to the table of the Lord. They share each other's tribulation, persecution, and revival. He goes on to add how they go visit the sick and give to the poor. Uh, a really tight unit, Tertullian and his wife. It also gives you some insight into how church life was conducted. Very, very active in terms of uh, visiting the sick and giving to the poor and fasting and so forth. Uh, one of the funny little things is that Tertullian, it was a little bit of a, of a, a battle in his own mind uh, because like so many other early church persons, he sort of felt that celibacy was the ideal, and yet here he was, a married man. And he once told his wife, he said, if something were to happen to me and I die, I want you to promise me that you will remain celibate thereafter. It's easy for him to impose his view of celibacy on his wife once he's gone. But uh, he still, even though he was married, still, like so many others, had a really high view of celibacy. Uh, he also uh, says at one point uh, that all second marriages, all second marriages are adultery. Uh, you get the picture of a very strict moral man with Tertullian. Jim. 
Excuse me? He was a He later became a Montanist. That's right. Uh, this is very reflective of his Montanist period. Uh, he certainly had Montanist sympathies. Whether or not he actually left the Orthodox Church and joined a Montanist group is debated. But uh, at any rate, just like the Montanists, believes that all second marriages are adultery. He never was a bishop, but he was, like Origen, a presbyter in Carthage. And as I said, uh, he was very much inclined toward extremes of one sort or another. A very strict asceticism. I'm talking about fasting and, and uh, all kinds of, of disciplines. Uh, there is in, in Tertullian a real enthusiasm for martyrdom. Again, you see the same sort of attitude in these first three centuries among significant numbers of Christians. The, the willingness, the, uh, the appropriateness of seeking almost martyrdom is very clear. And as a Montanist, he was also a Killiest or a premillennialist. Now, I've already pointed out that he looked at Rome in particular. And he felt like that the bishop at Rome uh, and other bishops in other places were not upholding a right and sufficiently rigid moral standard. And so this very sincere and extreme Tertullian took it upon himself to write books and pamphlets uh, to encourage bishops to live and maintain a higher standard. And even though he was critical of the bishops, the bishop of Rome and the bishops of these other places, still he is uh, very much an upholder of orthodox doctrine. As far as his death is concerned, we know very little about the circumstances, except that he died in approximately 230 A.D. Like Origen, Tertullian was a very prolific writer. And most of his writings occur in the first quarter of the third century. He has some apologetic works where he is uh, pleading the cause of Christianity against the pagan religions of Rome, uh, appealing to the, the emperor to grant toleration and respect to Christianity. He has a, a work he wrote called the Apologeticus, spelled here. And in this writing, he makes one of the most famous statements uh, throughout the early church period. This is a great quote. He says, What has the academy to do with the church? What has Christ to do with Plato? Or Jerusalem with Athens? He's drawing a big line between philosophy and Christianity. It's the very opposite of what Origen and the Greek apologists, the Greek theologians had done. They invited Greek philosophy as a tool. Tertullian completely separates the two as strongly as he possibly can. The quote, yeah. He says, What has the academy 
to do with the church? What has Christ to do with Plato or Jerusalem with Athens? That's one of the really famous quotes from Tertullian. Yes, I believe so. He was also the first person to to plead for religious liberty as an inalienable right which God has given to every person. This idea of religious liberty being an inalienable right. Tertullian seems to be the first to make that case. He also wrote a big book. The longest book he wrote was against Marcion, the heretic. Uh, Marcion certainly had Gnostic tendencies. And uh, Tertullian, uh, if there's anything he hates, it's, it's a Gnostic type person. Uh, listen to what he says about Marcion. Now remember Marcion was born in the city of Pontus in Phrygia. Tertullian writes, Nothing in Pontus is so barbarous and sad as the fact that Marcion was born there. <laughs> he calls Marcion a blasphemer, a savage, and a monster. Uh, you get the feeling of a certain intensity. He's, this guy's tightly wound, if you know what I mean. He also wrote a number of practical kinds of works on baptism, no, excuse me, on prayer, on fasting, and patience. Something we all need more of. One other thing, and he wrote some books on this, where uh, he was very hard on those people who during times of persecution lapsed they went ahead and complied with the demands of uh, the government and perhaps sacrificed to the emperor. Tertullian says, do not let those people back in the church even if they repent and say they are sorry for what they have done. Tertullian is, is, has very high moral standards for himself and for everybody else. And he is also very much against uh, people in times of persecution taking flight. He, think, he thinks that one ought to stay and face the medicine, even if it means martyrdom. In fact, better if it means martyrdom. Let's at least begin the theology of Tertullian. Uh, doctrine of God. And we start off at the very beginning with what is one of the most peculiar parts of Tertullian's theology. And that is this. He ascribes corporeality to God. Do you know what I mean by corporeality? Uh, substance. Physic, almost, as a, almost a physical, material substance to God. In fact, he uses the word corpus, body, to describe God. For Tertullian, there, there's a statement, a section where he, where he talks about God having a corpus. Now, this is the point at which it becomes difficult for a 20th century person 
looking back to Tertullian's time and trying to figure out what he meant by that. A couple of things to say about his assertion that God has a corpus. First of all, in Tertullian's day, at least in, and in some of his writings, it's pretty clear that Tertullian felt that to say something was incorporeal or spiritual was the same thing as saying it didn't exist. In other words, if I say something is, this is according to Tertullian's thing, if I say something is spiritual, that's tantamount to saying it doesn't exist. So Tertullian felt perhaps a certain reticence to say God is a spirit. And he felt therefore we had to find another word to suggest that God in fact existed. That what he's really after, some scholars think, by saying God has a corpus, that he's really just saying nothing other than God exists. Are you with me on that? To say God has corpus, body, is tantamount to saying that God exists. Well, I'm not absolutely sure that answers the question or if it's in fact true. Uh, some have argued as well that the passage in John 4 where it says God is a spirit, that Tertullian, in his mind, understood the word spirit to be a sort of a, a gaseous something, having a, a gas... Uh, a gaseous form, and therefore, for him to, for him that passage to say God is spirit, when he read that in the Gospel of John, for him, given the categories that he had in his world, to read that God is spirit was for him saying God has a gaseous being and therefore has some sort of material sort of form. So some people think that he may have misunderstood that passage. And, and because of that passage, because of his understanding, concluded that therefore God has a corpus. Again, let me emphasize it's difficult to go back 1,800 years or so and try to figure out exactly what Tertullian meant. What is clear is that there is no Gnostic, Demiurge kind of thing in the mind of Tertullian. God is the, the, the creator, the sovereign creator, and the final cause of all existence. For Tertullian... Uh, he believes that every creature has a spark of goodness in their soul. So for him, evil is not an independent entity. He is not a dualist. Again, he is anti-Gnostic. Evil does not have an independent existence. There are not two principles in the world a good God and an evil something over there. He rejects that. So for him, evil is, in effect, a corruption of the good. 
And that's man's problem. The good that God, the, the imprint of God upon man is good, and that has been corrupted. Now, that gets us off a little bit on the, his doctrine of God. And there's a certain complexity to that. But the most important contribution that he makes to Western theology is his doctrine of the Trinity. This is very significant as far as, as, far as Tertullian is concerned. Here we have the first time a scholar talking about the Trinitas, the Trinity. For the first time, we have the word Trinity by Tertullian. What does Tertullian mean by Trinitas or the Trinity? Well, he's pretty clear. There is a threeness in God. There is a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. And each of these is a person, a persona, to use his phrase. So there is plurality, threeness, and they are understood as having different personas. But then he makes the very subtle and important point. These three persona, while they are distinct, they are not divided. I'll say that again. These three persons or persona are distinct, but not divided. You see, he is making an a, a important advance on everything that has been talked about before, about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the first major step in the doctrine of the Trinity. He goes on to stress that these three persona are the same substance. The same substance. Three persons, one substance. Does that ring any bells for you folk? It's approaching the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. So, in sum, Tertullian sees God as one being in three persons. Very, very important stuff. He uses a couple of analogies. Dave? Word Trinity. He's the first. Other times, well, they have used the word triad, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but this is the first time that the word Trinitas or Trinity is used. Uh... Yes, I believe he does. Let me... He... Anyway, I, I'll have to, I have to double check on that. I think he does. But, but let, me, let me check. Okay. He uses a couple of analogies to describe this three-in-one. He's very famous for these two. The first, he uses the idea of a tree. 
And he says, a tree has a trunk, a root, and stems. And he says, on the one hand, there is one tree, but he can distinguish the root from the trunk from the stems. He also uses the analogy of the sun, or of light, I should say, sunlight. And here, he distinguishes the source of the light, namely the sun. He also then looks at the rays of light. You have the source, which is the sun. You have the rays of light. And then the area that the light illuminates. So he says there's one light, but he can distinguish three elements in the one. Those are the analogies that he uses. Now, one of the great advances here uh, that distinguishes the Western theology from the Eastern theology, Tertullian's language talks about God as one being. The Eastern theologians, some of them at least, talk about three beings. So there is a fundamental difference here as the the doctrine of the Trinity is being developed. The Western, the Tertullian, is talking about one being, three persons. The Eastern theologians some of them at least are talking about three beings. And one other thing to mention here is that as a Montanist, one would expect that Tertullian would give due weight to the Holy Spirit. And he does. He talks about the Holy Spirit uh, as one of the three, having substance, uh, one and three. Now, one last thing to mention here. Having said all of that and given you the picture of Tertullian's view of the Trinity, it also has to be said that he is still a subordinationist. That's why he doesn't quite arrive at what is called orthodox view, the orthodox view of the Trinity. On the one hand, we, he will assert the identity of nature between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One being. One substance. And yet, there is clear subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father. In fact, at one point, he quite clearly states that the Father is the whole of divine, divine being but the Son is only a part of divine substance. There are other comments that he makes that the the point I'm trying to get you to remember is that while he goes an awful long way toward the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, he doesn't quite get there because there is still this element of subordination in Tertullian. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't know if he distinguishes between Son and Holy Spirit. Uh, 
my, my point, when I say subordination, what I'm saying here is, is that there is a sense in which uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit are not quite God in the same way that the Father is. They're really close, but not quite. Any questions? No, 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 no. Uh, I'm talking ontologically in terms of the essence. Uh, you know, we'll, you, you know, we've talked about this before in another class, but the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity does talk about what, what, what the language I use is a functional subordination that Christ, for the purpose of redemption, subordinated Himself to the Father. That's, that's standard Orthodox notion. But in terms of essence... Uh, orthodoxy wants to maintain that there's one essence. Uh, that's by subordination. I'm talking about on an ontological basis. There seems to be some indication that the Son is not quite the same. He's God, but not quite as much God as the Father. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu